Hello and welcome to another episode of the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. On the last episode of the podcast, we spoke with Dr Una McElvenna about the subject of execution ballads. We've received a lot of feedback from listeners since that episode went out, saying just how interesting they found the topic. And so I thought I'd stick with the subject of folklore and death, and bring forward the release of an interview that I recorded just a few days ago to tie in with this. My guest for this interview was Claire Cox Starkey. Claire began her career in media outlets such as BBC Radio 4 and 5 Live, before finding herself working with Ben Schott, initially as a researcher. She'd later go on to help to develop the format for the well-known Schott's Almanac, eventually becoming series editor for both the UK, German and American editions. Claire still works as an editor, but is also a respected author in her own right, penning a beautiful series of children's folklore books beginning with Law of the Wild. Since 2020, she's been undertaking a part-time PhD at the University of London, Birkbeck, focusing her research on the folklore of death and dying in 19th century England. Claire explains how the rituals and traditions enacted on the deathbed and at funerals were passed down from generation to generation, providing ways for the family to offer comfort, to reaffirm social ties and to relieve anxieties. Through analysis of the folklore record, her research demonstrates how traditions recorded by folklorists can recuperate lost histories of a persistently marginalised sector of British society the rural working class. She examines the emotional and social function of death-related folklore to build a picture of hitherto obscured rural working class death culture. Here's my interview with Claire. So Claire, welcome on to the Folklore Podcast. This is an interview that we were going to do some time ago and, and it never quite happened for whatever reason, but here you are and welcome. You are very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, before we start, um, let's just talk a little bit about you first to familiarise people who um, are not necessarily au fait with your work, exactly what it is that you do and how what you do intersects with folklore, which is what we're all interested in. OK, well, professionally, I'm a writer. Um, I've been writing for over a decade and have written a, a number of nonfiction books for adults. Um, but more recently, I've been writing children's books, um, which have focused on folklore. And I kind of, I guess, got my interest up in folklore because it's something I've been studying in with my PhD, which I'm looking at um, death folklore in, in England in the 19th century. Um, so it's kind of just a confluence of all my interests, really, um, kind of covering both folklore and writing. And it's been super fun writing for children for a change because I'm used to kind of writing, I mean, I wouldn't say dry, but more kind of adult-based um, non-fiction. So it's nice to kind of be a bit more playful. You can maybe get away with being a little sillier, can't you, when you're writing for children, but yet still put the information across that you want to put across. Absolutely. And it's nice to kind of, well, that's a challenge sometimes as well, because I tend to be quite a wordy person. And so writing for children, obviously, you've got to, use accessible language um, and trying to explain some of the kind of more complicated folkloric concepts can be 
tricky at times when when you've got to make it accessible for children but that's that's quite an enjoyable challenge really now we are here to talk about your research into folklore and its connection with death which is a very important thing but I just want to ask you a little bit more about children's books before I do uh there are a couple of reasons for that one is that there's actually a lot of conversation on twitter I've been reading it this morning actually before recording this at the moment about the lack of representation of children's books in the media uh how they're not being concentrated on and and we obviously have always tried to champion children's books in in connection with folklore because I think it's a very important area. Um, so let's just cover that first because we're fulfilling another remit by doing that as well. Tell us a little bit more about the children's books that you have been writing and publishing. Okay, so the first one I've done is called Law of the Wild, um, and it's basically about nature folklore. So it's looking at folklore connected to birds, animals, plants, trees. Um, and then the second one I've done is Law of the Land, which is um, folklore relating to landscapes. So mountains, hills, volcanoes. Um, and then I've also got coming out in October, Law of the Stars, which will be looking at um, obviously everything connected to the sky, stars, planets, sun. Um, and it's just a really lovely way of, I feel, kind of bringing magic and connection to nature with children. And especially in the books, I try and look at myths and legends from all over the world to try and be as diverse as possible. Um, and I think that of itself is fascinating because you get to kind of compare different ways how people have thought about how the world was created. Um, and so it brings in some really quite, you know, meaty concepts there, but in an accessible way for children. And, and the kind of magical aspect, I think, is what allows children to then think about, well, yeah, how did the the moon get created? Or why is, you know, why do we have constellations? Or what are the stories behind, um, you know, why we see a scorpion here or different cultures see it as a lion? Or, you know, it, it just makes a, just makes a kind of the whole world around us much more magical. Um, and I think it's such a good way of getting children interested in stories and imagination and it kind of opens up um yeah sort of really creative way of looking at the natural world and that's that's been kind of my motivation for writing these books and they are magical books as well um I have them on my shelf to my left hand side as I as I talk to you and um and I say that because they are heavily and beautifully illustrated as well so as, as well as these kind of um not quite bite-sized, but but not massively textually heavy pieces of information. You have these wonderful illustrations, don't you, to go with them too? Yeah, that, I mean, I can't take credit for the illustrations. Obviously, I didn't do the beautiful illustrations. I've had a different illustrator for each book, and they've each done an incredible job of just interpreting um, all these very kind of different, you know, spirits and gods and goddesses and um, just really bringing to life the folklore. And that's what's brilliant when I'm writing it, because like you say, I often have to be quite um, brief in my descriptions. But knowing that it's going to go alongside a picture um, kind of lets me know that the children are going to be able to get so much more because I don't have to describe the God because I know there's going to be a picture that's going to provide that brilliant description for them. So it's, it's a really nice way of working 
constantly thinking about the visuals as well as the actual information I'm putting in there. So that it's it's um, yeah, I think I like the idea of of children sitting there and pouring over the pictures as much as the words and getting kind of a, a more rounded vision of everything from it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I will put links on the episode page to these books for people to go and seek them out. They are available in all good bookshops. Um, and there'll be reviews forthcoming on the Folklore Podcast website as well. So people can link to all of these things and, and grab copies for themselves. And you should do as well, because they are lovely. I, I want to segue very neatly into our actual topic of of death folklore um, by just asking you about the way in which writing for children about those sorts of topics can perhaps be more challenging because a lot of our folklore and myth and legend is quite dark, is quite macabre. There were reasons for that in terms of why these stories were used. But if you're pitching a book at at children aged 7 to 14, for example, that can be a bit tricky, can't it? How, How have you broached that? Yeah, it, it's been because I'm naturally, I would say, quite a macabre person. Like, that's what I'm drawn to. I like the dark stuff. Um, but I'm acutely aware that I wouldn't want children to be terrified by what they're reading. Um, and so often I'm, I am softening um, what, you know, in its kind of natural form would be a bit more um perhaps horrifying like lots of um folk tales when you read them they're so just random just suddenly someone's head's chopped off and someone else is put in a cauldron and and there seems to be no kind of attempt to soften it in in the traditional tales it's just like wham bam horrendous things happen the end um and I've quite enjoyed kind of taking the essence of those stories and then finding a way to soften it slightly so it wouldn't be quite so scary for children Although some parts of the scary folklore, I do feel like they quite enjoy. So it's kind of getting that balance between including, like I feel like they, lots of children seem to really engage with the um, sort of cautionary tale spirits and characters, you know, who kind of lurk in ponds and pull people in if they get too close. I think that kind of slight bit of danger is quite exciting for some children. So I kind of try and balance it between the two, having some of the the folklore leaving it as it is others I then try and slightly soften and change the story or perhaps just take out the most harsh pit bits um so that it, it's kind of a bit more accessible and less scary yeah but it, it's important to not do that too much isn't it you're absolutely right because these things are you know they're culturally important that they're, they're part of our makeup they're how we identify ourselves with those around us with our folk groups with our culture um and that's certainly the case in the in the topic that we're actually going to concentrate on really today, which, which is folklore associated with death. Um, death is is obviously an important part of life in many ways because it is ultimately where everybody is heading towards. Um, so it's a very significant part of everybody's lives. Why and how do we find so much folklore associated with death in our culture? I think um, any sort of rite of passage traditionally has been a huge moment for folklore. So birth, death, marriage, um, any kind of, I guess it's like a change of state, isn't it? That That's where you get most of the kind of beliefs. That's where 
the kind of, I guess, the veil between the worlds is slightly um, thinner because people are, well, obviously when you're dying, you're moving on um, and, and, you know, people have long kind of wondered about where they're going after death. Um, and obviously, you know, there's a huge influence from religion as well, feeling like that the spirit might be going on to an afterlife and how important it is to make sure that that person safely gets to the next life. And what can you do to to make that happen? So obviously, pre-Reformation, um, Catholic belief would have been praying for the soul to, to move on. But, you know, after the Reformation, people felt that kind of gap what do we do now? We're not allowed to pray for their soul because we don't believe in purgatory anymore because we've been told we're not supposed to. Um, and as a result, kind of a lot of folklore built up just popular culture in England, certainly, to kind of fill that gap um, and give people kind of a feeling of power and agency over that moment of death. That's what I found so interesting in a lot of the deathbed folklore is really it gives the kind of gathered family, a role to play at a time which can be, you know, extremely scary and upsetting, see someone you love um, dying, to, to have some rituals that you can then actually feel like you're helping them to pass on safely or um, get to heaven or whichever afterlife, I think is really is an amazing thing to be able to do. So you mentioned deathbed rituals there. Let's let's just focus on on that for a, a moment to start with, um, because in fact we can probably look at this folklore in three distinct stages. I think so. There's there's that associated with the deathbed. There's there's then obviously um, the preparation for a final rite, if you like, and then there's the kind of funerary folklore that comes with that final rite of passage. Um, so let's let's start at the beginning then with with um, deathbed rituals. Explain a little bit more about how those come about, what their makeup is. Usually, the deathbed is somewhere where people come, they gather, they want to say goodbye to the person who's dying. <clears throat> and so, the sorts of um, folklore that you find at that point would be things, as I mentioned, that would kind of help the person pass on. So, one of the like most common beliefs across England was the belief that um, if there were pigeon feathers in the bed or in the pillow that that would stop someone from passing on and having an easy death and so as a result people would often move people from a bed um, they'd even like hoist them off the bed using kind of sheets to get them onto a, a chair or onto the floor to let them then be able to pass on so it's this kind of sense that um, the either magical objects, in this case, pigeon feathers, or there was also the feeling that if the family surrounding the person who was trying to die wanted them to stay too much, that they were effectively keeping them from passing on. So it was, it was sort of a cruel thing. So it was a way of emotionally letting go that gave the people a kind of power to be like, right, we are saying you can go. And the person could then pass on. Um, and with the pigeon feathers, they'd also kind of do it the other way. If they were like, oh, um, you know, someone's traveling from out of town and we want them to have a chance to say goodbye. Let's put some pigeon feathers under dad's head. That means he won't be able to die for another couple of hours. And hopefully the person couldn't arrive, make their farewell. Then we can remove the feathers, 
and then they'll pass on. So it's it's kind of so interesting to think about um, the kind of feeling that people had a power to let people pass on or keep them here. Have you looked at the kind of aspects of folklore that lead up to that point of death as well? The, the, and I'm thinking of things like, you know, portentous folklore. Some some families have these kind of family fetches or portents attached to them. Does that kind of fit into this whole lead up to to um, the deathbed aspect of this? Yeah, I think um, death omens are particularly interesting because, um, you know, traditionally folklore is seen as a kind of rural working class thing. And yet with death omens, there's tons of um, omens connected to our aristocratic families. Um, so there it kind of um, becomes a slightly bigger um, belief. You know, like there's there's ideas that there's certain trees connected to families. And if a branch falls off, it means that someone in the family is going to die. Um, and actually, when I'm looking at death fol- folklore, the amount of omens is incredible, like literally everything and anything, you know, a beetle crossing your path is a death omen, a bird landing on the window is a death omen, you know, literally everything is a death omen, which I think kind of speaks to the idea that um, there was this belief that everyone had a set time and place when death was going to happen, and it was kind of predestined, Um because yeah and I I kind of feel like that again shows a kind of very deep connection between people and the natural world you know they were looking for these signs within nature that would tell them about when they were going to die um and I think again it kind of it it gives a sort of order to life it kind of you know there's a natural ebb and flow like with the seasons of when someone's life is going to end, there's this kind of opportunity to then gather at the deathbed, make make farewells, and help them move on to the other side safely. So, and we, we can understand looking at the rural nature of folklore. A lot of these death omens, in in terms of nature, because because we can see these kind of superstitious beliefs in many aspects of folklore and rural life. But you're absolutely right. The majority, I would argue, of family death portents uh, of real significance are centred around upper class aristocratic families, Mm. well-established families. And I wonder why you think that is. I wonder if it's because you know, these sort of landed families have such a deep connection to their family estate, for example. So, you know, like I said about a tree, if you've lived in the one place for a long time and this um, tree was, you know, planted by your ancestors, it it becomes kind of emblematic of your family and your connection to that land. And so I wonder if that's why so many aristocratic families kind of kept this um, idea of death portents that were linked to their land and their the area that they kind of ruled over. Um, and it's it's kind of romantic as well, isn't it? It kind of gives the family a bit of cachet to be like, oh, well, we're the family that when there's a hawk that flies over, it means one of us is going to die. So and it kind of, yeah, adds a kind of nice bit of family um, legend, I guess. Yeah, and I, and I suppose all that goes to kind of add to the 
importance of the family in the social structure you know we have this attached to our family because we are important you yeah. don't have that sort of thing you have to worry about a beetle crossing your path or whatever being a signifier whereas we have this hawk or this white bird or this black dog or owl yeah. or whatever so yeah maybe it's associated with that as well so are, are most of the rituals associated with the deathbed really about making sure that the passage on to the next stage is safe and right and the person can pass on um or, or are there other rituals as well at that stage which have importance i think um so once the person's actually died once they kind of let the person go then there's there's lots of quite very practical embodied rituals such as opening a window to let the spirit escape covering mirrors, covering clocks, um, putting the fire out. So it's lots of sort of um, symbolic things to kind of um, show the spirit that their time on earth is ended. This is a different phase of life. It's a kind of transitional thing. Um, and also literally removing barriers, you know, kind of as if there is an actual physical spirit that's going to need to pass out of a window. Um, so I think that, and, and you know, as a family gathered there, actually physically carrying out these acts can be quite a powerful way of signalling that transition and that uh, something's changed, you know, by putting out the fire, you're saying it's the end of one period of time, starting another, you know, this is a cold place now, you have passed on, we won't light the fire again until the next day. It's, it's, um, yeah, definitely that kind of liminal transitional space yeah. when someone dies, <clears throat> you you know, you enter a kind of weird moment of time before they're actually buried, you know, and at, at that time, a lot of the rural working class people would keep the body in the home until burial, which could be, a, you know, a week having the body in their front room. And so I think there needs to be or needed to be these kind of rituals that help people accept that one period of time had finished and you'd entered this new phase of time um, where you're kind of the spirit was moving on and you were helping the person move on but you were also then helping yourself except death had happened you had lost a member of your family so I think they had very you know actual strong <clears throat> uses in terms of accepting grief and moving on really. Mm. Uh and, and folklore is very heavily associated with with that whole process of grief, I guess, as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I, I don't think in the 19th century they were, were talking about it in terms of psychoanalysis and grief. But looking at it with modern eyes, to me, it does seem very much like they were using these rituals to kind of accept death. You know, lots of the ways that they then dealt with the dead body you know, they would lay out the body themselves, they would dress the body, they would have the body, like I said, in the house for perhaps up to a week and people would come and visit the body. And most people would then touch the dead body because it was, you know, by touching the body, it was meant to kind of show um, and make sure that they didn't come back and haunt you in your dreams. And it was also to kind of show that you had um, sympathy for that person it was a way of kind of sharing your condolence 
Um, and I think just having that connection and physical connection to the dead body was a really useful way for people to actually accept that this was not their alive relative anymore. This was something else. Um, it's an ending. And I feel like today, you know, we have such a kind of divorced relationship to death. You know, we don't have that um, physical relationship with our dead relatives. You know, when someone dies, they're kind of whisked away by the undertaker and then put in a coffin and we we don't see them. We don't get to kind of process um, that very natural absence that you would see and sense if you actually are faced with a dead body and I think that you know I think that's in a way made it harder for us to accept death in the same way. So these rituals that are associated with the preparation of the body then so the the second stage between what's happened when a person has died and is on the deathbed and, and before we move on to the funerary processes, do these tend to be rituals and undertakings that are predominantly practical or do they have that kind of symbolic element to them still as well? They are definitely very practical, but there were elements also of symbolism within that. So I think on a very practical basis, when you're dealing with a dead body, you've got to think about this is something that's going to start going off and smelling in your house if you don't do certain things. And also that's then awful for the people who are coming to visit the body if you don't wash and clean it and plug orifices, you know, seepage can occur. Um, So you want to kind of obviously make the body as presentable as possible. If you're going to be having a dead body in your house for up to a week, you don't want it to be smelling um, and looking horrible. You want that person to look at peace. And so part of it was very practical, you know, dressing them in their uh, grave clothes and, you know, shrouding the body, um, trying to make the face look as peaceful as possible. Um, and also, you know, perhaps tucking some herbs around the body to stop it smelling. Um, but within that, they also did things like placing a dish of salt on the chest of the corpse, which was a, a number of reasons were given. Some said that it was to kind of repel evil spirits. Others said it was um, helped absorb kind of moisture in the air and keep the body fresh. Um, and so they were kind of you know, two sides, often a practical and a symbolic side to each step of the preparation. Um, So, yeah, I think it's just an interesting way of looking at that kind of moment, as I was talking about, that kind of transitional moment where you have that dead body in your house for a week, people are coming by to visit, to say goodbye. Um, You know, what's the purpose of all of these rituals and preparation what are you doing with that and and mainly I think it was a way of the community to kind of come to terms show their respect and show sympathy and condolence for the family um so it's quite a kind of um beautiful way of doing it really quite simple and um heartfelt and yeah I mean obviously don't want to slag off modern undertaking but it it seems 
a very different process from the one that we we have now. Yeah, well, I, I think I think I, part of the difference probably is the whole um, process of speeding up this sequence of events compared to how things used to happen in modern times, along with all the regulatory things that that go with modern life, which make it a very different thing, don't they? I guess. So, you have a body which is now prepared for burial, um, and it would have been burial in most cases at the time that we're looking at. Um, these days, again, that can be quite different. Um, so then you have the funeral and the post-funeral elements, um, which is where this, again, moves from being a more family-oriented thing to more of a community event in some cases and it could be an event couldn't it historically um as well so talk a little bit about the the funerary aspects and how how folklore and belief fit into that well as you mentioned funerals are very much a kind of public performance that there's something that that everyone in the local community is going to see because you're going to be certainly in the 19th century if you're in a rural community you are going to be carrying that body from the home to the local graveyard. So it's going to be sort of processed through the village. Everyone's going to see it. So it's a a much more sort of visual and public performance of grief. Whereas like the folklore of the deathbed and the preparing of the body is a kind of more of a family, private rituals. This suddenly is something where you're performing your grief. And in the 19th century, um, certainly funerals, were entirely transformed in in urban locations like they became these huge commodified spectacles um where kind of you know traditional baronial customs that had been an aristocratic funeral with all the crepe and the feathers and the staves and the hats and that that started kind of filtered down to the the middle and lower classes as undertakers started commodify these goods and and make it you know that everyone felt like they had to put on these incredible shows um whereas in rural areas where kind of more traditional funerals continue to be enacted they didn't have access to those undertakers you know the kind of economics of undertaking didn't work in rural locations so they didn't have the kind of pressure to have ostrich feathers and Um, hat bands and mutes instead they were able to still express a more kind of traditional um, mode of burial which um, was a lot simpler um, and also extremely regional like the kind of traditions that people had varied from place to place so I mean that's always the case when you're talking about folklore you can't really make these huge sweeps because it's so specific you know it can even be specific to one family um so you know you can find themes for example um certainly in rural funerals plants and flowers were were really important you know often uh people would carry a sprig of rosemary for remembrance and and throw it into the grave or perhaps an evergreen such as yew um and then 
in some locations, there was a big thing for if a, a virgin had died, they'd do a whole kind of um, parade where they'd make a, a, a big garland um, to kind of show their chastity. Um, and they'd often make like little paper um, gloves that they'd hang from these garlands, they'd parade to the church and then they'd display these garlands in the church. And there are some locations in England where you can still see um, these 19th century garlands still have a place in the church. Um, slightly losing my train of thought of what my original point there was, but... Um, that they're very regionally... Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So... so um, you have a kind of, you know, I, I can't make a general like all rural funerals with this, that or the other, because it, it is very regional. But um, I'm kind of looking at the difference between rural and urban, fu- urban funerals. And there is a vast difference because the urban funerals in the Victorian period were extremely commodified, whereas a rural funeral was very much not. Yeah. And of course, uh Cost is a big difference, isn't it? Particularly, you talk about the commodification of of the funeral. Um, you know, people were buried without a coffin in most cases in rural funerals, just shrouded, um, because these things all cost money, and people didn't have money. So the practices around it, I guess, were very different. Thinking about, I don't, I don't know that commodification is necessarily the right term to use. And I know this is slightly outside of your sphere of research specifically. But thinking about the symbolism of the funeral, you talk about, you know, the barons and the baronets and the ostrich feathers and all this sort of thing in in a big funeral. Of course, we saw this last year in the UK with a very significant state funeral when the queen passed away and thinking back as well to to previous kind of royal funerals uh, a very symbolic funeral when princess diana died in a very different way particularly for the public's interaction with it can you comment at all on the importance of the symbolism of those kinds of state events and how the public come together with those uh, I think that's so interesting is it because I feel like uh, certainly in big state funerals it's become there's a certain expectation of what we want to see and what is deemed respectful um, and definitely the kind of um, visual aspect of those funerals is huge you know that always they put on a very long procession so as many people as possible can see um, the hearse passing through and feel like they're personally getting to say goodbye. So I guess on a kind of grander scale, that that does take us back to the kind of rural custom of people coming and visiting the body and saying goodbye. This is just that, but on a much bigger scale. And then obviously you've got to um, kind of create an impressive hearse so that it shows all the respect that's being given to that person, you know, it's become those kind of material goods have become closely associated with showing respect. It's almost like the more fancy the hearse, the better respected the person is, conversely. Um, Which, yeah, I I mean, I, I feel like that's 
that's kind of a huge part of those public events, isn't it? That kind of um, spectacle, really, that, that um, you know, was exemplified by um, the Duke of Wellington's funeral in the Victorian period where, you know, it was this enormous parade that went on for hours as all these different people marched past and everyone thronged out to come and watch um, and that was kind of seen as the like absolute pinnacle of Victorian excess, mm. but, excess. But historically, did that also happen because it was a way for the monarchy to remind the lower classes who was in charge? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely the, the, a huge um power play isn't it it's it's like look what we can do we can basically stop the world from functioning for one day everyone's going to stop and stand and watch and see and and say goodbye to this person because they are so important um and I guess if you kind of uh, the counterpoint to that would be you know you're a pauper funeral someone who's getting buried at the expense of the parish who had just been tossed in a cart and thrown in a common grave with no one so it's the, like the complete opposite ends of that spectrum. Okay, so let, let, let's bring it back down to earth from, from these kinds of um, spectacles uh, of, of state funerals and things like that um, to the kinds of um, kinds of funerals that, that we see for, for regular people, regular um, members of the community. Death and the funeral and burial and all of those things are a time of sadness. They are a time of grief, but they aren't only that, are they? And when we move from the funeral to um, the wake or to whatever culturally is the thing that comes next, we're talking about a time of celebration aren't we as much as we are a time of grief um what kind of makeup do we see historically for for that aspect in terms of the importance of food the importance of discussion about the person and, and the ways that people responded after the burial had taken place yeah, that was an aspect of um, rural working class culture, which, which came under some criticism from kind of the press at the time, because they, for whatever reason, thought it was quite unseemly, the amount of people who used to show up for rural funerals and the amount of eating and drinking that would happen. And, and that was mainly seen as um, a negative kind of rowdy, raucous undesirable thing it wasn't considered somber in the same way you know because with your middle and upper class funerals it was meant to be a very serious occasion you know um emotion was kind of kept in stiff upper lip you know just a somber serious face whereas at these rural funerals you know there would be huge groups of people they'd be all sharing a drink sharing food laughing singing it came across as perhaps like they weren't taking death seriously but actually I feel like it was much more of a kind of wonderful community event you know this was a way of making connections 
and actually of showing emotion in a really kind of positive way. Um, you know, traditionally each kind of region of Britain would have their own um, funeral biscuit or cake that would be given out at the funeral and people would share. And, and actually that was kind of, for some reason, for some people it became a reason to go to funerals because you get your free biscuit or your, your funeral bread. And then they'd also, you know, share drink. There was often kind of special like spiced wines that people would pass around. But again, that kind of sharing of food and drink builds those kind of communities links um it makes people feel included and you know i think it, it's a really kind of joyous way of saying goodbye to someone it's you know it if you contrast it to the kind of you know very male only funerals of the upper classes where people are all just in black and looking miserable i know it's one i'd rather attend mm. yeah oh yeah absolutely okay so just finally um sticking with this this idea of remembrance and celebration obviously you know time goes on after all this has happened um and certainly different cultures treat this in a different way um i i've written about uh the menen culture for example where where bodies are, are dug up and checked every year and redressed and there's a big celebration and you're sharing time with your ancestors in that way if you like obviously you're working with um historic uh practices in the uk predominantly which is very different um but what do we see in terms of folklore and tradition if anything moving on with this kind of um you know post post loss post burial um the rest of the family's lives without that person how does that fit in Do you know what that's that's one of the things that's been really interesting and I don't know if it's more because it just wasn't recorded but I have found very very little um folklore recorded in any way to sort of memorialize people or remember them you know apart from I guess kind of again pre-reformation um sort of ceremonies that perhaps slightly survived you know of um all souls but other than that mostly it feels like they had the funeral they said goodbye and that was it they moved on there wasn't like a a yearly ritual there weren't gravestones for them to visit because most rural people couldn't afford a gravestone so there wasn't that kind of tradition that built up around, you know, garden cemeteries where people go and tend a beautiful grave and contemplate their loved ones. And there wasn't, you know, post-mortem photography or memento mori in the same way as you have with the kind of middle and upper class death culture. So from what I found, there, there wasn't really anything, which is so interesting to feel like perhaps, you know, once they'd, they'd done a beautiful funeral, that made a good farewell but then that was it they just life continued yeah yeah I think you're probably right there's a lot more that that we could talk about but you know we could talk about um death related to criminals and the kind of folklore associated with that and, and probably um 
grave robbing and all sorts of different things. I think that's a different discussion for a, a, a different episode. I think what I wanted to focus on here is, is very much the family and community aspect of death and the ritual associated with it. Uh, anything else before I wrap up that you think we should add to that particular area that we haven't specifically talked about? I guess one of the things um, that I I would love to emphasise about rural working class death culture is that it was very reciprocal. Everyone pitched in, everyone helped out. Like you said, people didn't have very much money. So when someone died, neighbours came round, they helped laid out the body, they would lend you black clothes for the funeral if you needed it. Everyone would, you know, come round to help carry the coffin. You know, it was a community-based um, ceremony. And I think that that's what, you know, I find particularly beautiful about looking at these um, traditional rural funerals is that they were really were all helping each other. And it was a very kind of cathartic community-based experience. And I think that's, you know, something we've very sadly lost. Yeah, uh, in in the the now homogenized global modern commodified world, it's almost a non-event in many ways, isn't it? Now, um, and I think that probably is something to be mourned. Yeah, yeah. Claire, thank you so much for for taking the time to discuss your research. It's been absolutely fascinating. Uh, if people want to find out more about you and your research and those things, where would you like them to go? You can follow me on Twitter at nonfictioness, and I also have a website uh, which is also nonfictioness.com. Um, and you can kind of keep up with what I'm up to there. I, I tend to talk about writing and also my PhD research. So, and probably lots of pictures of my dog as well. Apologies. <laughs> I shall put links on the episode page for all of those places so that people uh, can go and see them and hopefully I shall get you back on at some point to talk about the other aspect of your research which doesn't fit in with this which which is the kind of uh, Victorian and Edwardian period folklore collecting more generally and how folklore was collected in, in the rural and the urban environments that's probably a discussion for another day but I hope you'll come back and have it I'd love to You'll find links to Claire's work and social media on the Folklore Podcast website as usual, on the episode page for this episode. I look forward to welcoming Claire back in the future for a whole other discussion on the techniques of collecting folklore in her period of study, and those who undertook it. Thanks and welcome to those of you who joined the Folklore Podcast Patreon page recently. Your support is invaluable in keeping this project going. Patreon support costs as little as a pound a month, that's basically the price of a bar of chocolate these days, and for that you can access additional audio content and other bonus features. For the price of a coffee, you can join our member Discord server and discuss, well, anything you like really. The link for all of this is www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. I hope you can join us there. Thanks for listening. See you next time.